You're listening to the MLB.com StatCast Podcast. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. We are smack dab in the middle of the winter meetings, uh, and that makes doing a pre-recorded show a little bit interesting, because by the time you hear this, maybe Mike Trout is on the Yankees, maybe Jake Arrieta is on the Chicago Bulls, maybe Jose Fernandez has been traded to Real Madrid. There's a lot going on, probably happening exactly as we speak, but we are going to press forward anyway, and we're going to talk about the AL Central, two of the more interesting teams in that division. First, we're going to start with the Minnesota Twins, and for that, I'm happy to welcome in Aaron Gleeman of NBCSports.com and Roto World, someone I've been reading for many years. Aaron, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. Listen, the Twins got off to uh, they had an interesting season last year, right? They got off to a pretty good start, uh, but you know, a lot of the metrics kind of indicated maybe it was a little more luck than talent. It wasn't going to last, and you know, they hung in the race till pretty close to the end, but you know, it kind of didn't work for them. But I think overall, it was a good season, right? Like you had Miguel Sano come up and was a monster. You had uh, Buxton came up. You know, you had a, a lot of good things breaking, and then uh, they get into the offseason, and now they've gone out and tra- uh, signed Byung-ho Park, uh, two-time Korean League MVP, 53 homers last year. Obviously, Korean ball is a little bit more pinball than America, so don't put a ton of stock in that number. And they only laid out $24 million in, in guaranteed salary, which when you look at the numbers everybody else is getting, that does not seem like a lot for a guy who can possibly hit a ton of home runs for Minnesota. Yeah, it was a weird move in that if you looked at their roster, like like you mentioned, Sano was – I thought going to be at the DH spot, and their strengths in terms of depth was young outfielders. They have still have Joe Mauer at first base, so for them to go out and get a slugging first baseman slash DH surprised a lot of people. But like you said, the price was right. I mean, who knows how he's going to hit? It's very tough because there hasn't been that many Korean players to come to America, uh, especially hitters. But for a twenty-four million dollar investment, he doesn't have to be all that great or even be a full-time player. Uh, to, bro- to provide decent value, and then it does give them some options. They could maybe look to trade Trevor Plouffe. Uh, they might end up moving Sano to the outfield, so it gives them something, which is a, hopefully a right-handed power bat that they haven't had a lot of before Sano's arrived. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we're going to uh, jump right to Miguel Sano because how could we not? And, uh, you know, as I've said earlier, we could talk about him for two hours because uh, Miguel Sano came up and was really a monster. We looked at the StatCast numbers here. Uh, he had the third highest exit velocity, uh, 94.9 miles an hour behind Stanton and Miggy. Obviously, he's crushing the ball. Second highest average distance behind only Chris Carter. Uh, if you look at his w- uh, weighted runs created plus, 151 would have been the top 10 over a full season. Josh Donaldson had 154. I mean, he was playing at the really kind of MVP caliber. But what I found really most interesting about him is, well, he struck out a ton, the highest percentage in Major League Baseball at 35.5%. He also had the sixth highest walk rate. And usually you don't see guys who strike out a lot and walk that much and have that much power. Uh, he, he, when you look at him, you know, what do you see that makes him so much different from every other kind of young power hitting prospect we've seen come up? Well, I think, I mean, you hit on it. It was, he was so interested in, he, he didn't care if he struck out. To him, the strikeout was no different than a pop-out or a ground-out, which I think is a good thing and certainly... Uh, something the Twins as an organization, I think, can learn from uh, in evaluating power hitters. But he was so interested in taking the pitchers into deep counts and just pouncing when they made a mistake. And if they if they weren't willing to give him a pitch that he could hit 450 feet, he would gladly just take a walk. But I think, you know, I looked at uh, in September, he had, I think, the second highest percentage of 3-2 counts and I think the Mike Trout led the league, which really tells me, I mean, for a guy who missed all of last year after elbow surgery uh, and basically made the jump from, from double A and is only 22 and all that stuff, and for him to be going 3-2 more than anybody but Mike Trout uh, and the overall production, like he listed, was incredible, and especially because that, that's just not the type of hitter the Twins have had basically ever uh, since, you know, Harmon Killebrew, a guy who 
is sort of a three true outcomes, strikeouts, walks, homers guy. They've been such a kind of gap-to-gap contact-hitting team for the last you know 20 years, basically. And so that's, I think, part of the reason people in Minnesota got so excited to see him. He's not only great, but he's great in a way we haven't really seen it. Now, you, you touched on something earlier uh, when we were talking about Park, is where all this, where all these pieces fit. Uh, and so Snow came up as a third baseman. I don't think he really played there that much. It was mostly a DH. Now rumor is they're going to move him to the outfield. And I think you tweeted this uh, last week. He's listed at 260 pounds, and it's been 50 years since a right fielder that big played 100 games. Uh, and I don't think he's ever actually played the outfield, and correct me if I'm wrong on that, but this seems unlikely to work for him, right? Yeah, it's very strange. He's listed at 260 uh Terry Ryan, the GM, said a few days ago that they they weighed him at 268 at the end of the season. And, I mean, he's 22. He's not going to get smaller unless he really works to get smaller. He's just a big guy. It's not that he's fat or anything. He's just a huge person. And, uh, yeah, like you said, he was a third baseman. He was signed as a shortstop, which was it's crazy to think about. But he was almost immediately moved to third base, and he's played there for six years in the minors pretty consistently. And the funny thing is that when – you know, whether it's Baseball America or the prospect guys at MLB.com or, or just guys like me who would doubt his ability to stick at third base, the Twins would constantly say, no, you guys are wrong. He can play third base. He's got a good arm. He's more athletic than you think. And then, funny, when it comes time to actually give him a position in the majors, uh, it sounds like it's going to be the outfield in large part because of Park, but also because they just seem unwilling to part ways with Trevor Plouffe quite yet. I think if you have Snow in the outfield, at, at best defensively, let's say he could be adequate, right? He's probably never even going to be average or above, and he might even be considerably worse than that. And so that's interesting. I think it's an interesting fit for this team because, as we've known for many years, they've put together these rotations that don't strike out a lot of guys. They were 17, 17% strikeout rate last year is the last worst in baseball, and it's been that way for a number of years. Uh, and then you put a guy out there who's probably not going to get to a lot of balls, and we saw that last year with Torrey Hunter playing the outfield. I know, you know, you can go back and forth with him on whether it's the advanced metrics or not, but he didn't really look that great in the outfield. Do you think this team just doesn't place high emphasis on defense out there considering this pitching staff, or do you think they just hope that he's going to hit well enough that it won't matter? I think they – it's funny because, you know, I, I mentioned how they've – I don't know if it's a struggle or a conscious effort to not really target, you know, a power-hitting, high-strikeout type of player, but that goes hand-in-hand hand with – they, for the most part, for a couple of decades now, have loved toolsy – good defensive, speedy outfielders, uh, you know, going back to, to Puckett and Hunter when he was a center fielder, and a lot of their first-round picks have been high school center fielders and all that, so I think they value it. I, I just think, for whatever reason, they view Trevor Plouffe as a lot more valuable offensively than, you know, his on-base percentage and slugging percentage would suggest. He had a bunch of RBIs this year, and he's a, another homegrown guy, so, you know, they're, they're hesitant to get rid of him, but yeah, I agree with you. I think part of the worry with to know is that he might just be very bad defensively, but the other worry is do you really want, you know, 268 pounds running around up there crashing into outfield walls? He had some hamstring issues already. Uh, I, I just wonder if it's all worth it to keep Plouffe's, you know, good but not great bat in the lineup. You know, the other thing about putting Sano out there is this is not a team that's hurting for outfielders. You know, even with trading Aaron Hicks to the Yankees, uh, they still have uh, Rosario, who had a pretty good year last year. Uh, Byron Buxton, obviously, who's one of the top prospects in baseball, made his debut. Uh, R.C. is not far away. Max Kepler, who I just love, is not far away. Adam Walker's not that far away. There's a ton of outfielders. So it's not necessarily that he's filling a hole, right? Right. And, I mean, for most of this year, when they would put Hunter on the bench, they would trot out an outfield that had two or three good defensive center fielders playing in the outfield. And if you look, I started looking ahead till next year and, you know, the next 10 years saying, 
why couldn't it be Rosario, Buxton, Kepler from left to right? And those guys are all plus-plus defensive outfielders. Uh, and like you mentioned, you know, with a pitching staff that doesn't strike anybody out, that seems like a really good strategy to me, especially if some of those guys become the type of hitter uh, that they think they can be based on their prospect status. And then to kind of go, for, go away from that almost immediately to turn back to Snow is strange. But the other thing is it's possible that they just don't think Snow is going to be much of a third baseman either, in which case you're kind of choosing the lesser of the two evils. But then that goes back to their pursuit of, of Byung-Ho Park, which makes it all the more surprising anyway. So then with Park and Snow, this really could be resolved if you had them going back and forth, maybe first base and DH, uh, except for Joe Maurer. $23 million a year for the next three years. Last two years, he's been basically league average, 270, 348, 376, uh, but he's been trending downwards for, for a bunch of years. Is this is this maybe not what you expected to see from him uh, in terms of power, but you know the on-base percentage has to be disappointing. Is there a bounce back coming, or is this just kind of what he is now? It's been a huge disappointment, but my worry is that one, he's just getting older, uh, so he was going to decline anyway. But two, I think you can basically trace the decline offensively back to his concussion. And the big thing when he suffered the concussion, obviously, was that he was moving from catcher to first base. But at the time, he was hitting 320 with his usual, you know, 410 on base percentage, tons of walks, tons of doubles. He just hasn't been that player offensively since the concussion, setting aside the position he's playing defensively. And, you know, you combine that with age and just the wear and tear of all those years catching, I'm I'm pretty pessimistic that he's going to get back to the level he was. With that said, you know, if he didn't have the name recognition and the $23 million salary attached, he'd just be, you know, sort of a bottom-of-the-order, mediocre first baseman that you'd be looking to upgrade, but they have him signed for three years and $23 million a year still. And, you know, he's a hometown guy, was at least formerly a hugely popular player, so he's not going anywhere which further kind of makes for a logjam of outfielders, first baseman, and DHs. Yeah, I know that. Um, I love it, and I think I've seen you say this as well. When, when people suggest that he should move back behind the plate, ignoring that concussions are actually brain injuries, and that's, that's where he got them. So I don't see him ever going back behind the plate. Another guy in the offense I wanted to talk to you about a bit was Brian Dozier. Uh, got off to an amazing first start, first half. I think he made the All-Star team. But when you look at uh, his second half, dropped 200 points of OPS. And when you look at the StatCast uh, dis- average distance for his hits, 233 in the first half, 203 in the second half. And that's the second year in a row, I believe, that he's kind of declined in the second half. Is this just what he is, uh, hot in the first half, declining in the second half? Or is this kind of a longer-term issue? It could just be who he is. It's, I mean, as a, as a minor leaguer, he was a high-contact, low-power, kind of, uh, you know, scrappy, cliched middle infielder, and then he's transitioned into sort of a walks-in-power guy, and it was amazing to watch him in the first half when he had a great first half. He would just crush every high fastball, and as a, I'm far from a scout, but just watching the games, I would go, why do they continue to throw him high fastballs? And whether that played a part in his decline in the second half, or whether it was just random, or whether it was just you know, teams figuring out his overall approach. I think he's, you know, better than he showed in the second half. I just don't know that he can put together the kind of consistent at-bats uh, to where he's hitting for a decent average. He's kind of chosen to draw walks and hit for power and live with, you know, 240 average streakiness and, and strikeouts. And I think that's ultimately a good choice because, you know, you get a decent defensive second baseman who hits 25 homers, he's a good player. Uh, but I think... That's you kind of have to live with that. And Twins fans, you know, it goes back to the the thing with Sano. They haven't been conditioned to be big fans of a 240 high strikeout hitter. 
Uh, and Do- between Dozier and Sano, I think they're going to have to get used to it. Yeah, maybe Park as well, because I, I, he swung and missed a lot in, in Korea, and uh, he's going to face some tougher pitching in America. So when we move to the pitching side of things, I might be the first non-Twins fan ever to really be excited about Trevor May. Uh, you look at Trevor May, started out as a starter, uh, 81 innings at a 4.43 ERA, and then he ended up pitching in relief for the last couple months, and he was great. Uh, 287 ERA, his uh, strikeout percentage jumped from 20% as a starter to 28 added a couple miles an hour of velocity, as most pitchers tend to when they go into relief. But he wants to be a starter. And you look at the rotation, they have Hughes, Santana, Nolasco, Gibson, uh, Malone, Tyler Duffy, Jose Barrios coming up. It's almost a full rotation, and he was a lot more effective in relief. He wants to be a starter. Is that ever actually going to happen? I hope it does, uh, because I, you know, I'm all for transitioning starters to reliever, if, especially when he showed that you know, his, his raw stuff plays up quite a bit in the bullpen, and I think he can be a setup man or closer caliber reliever. I just don't know if they gave him enough of a chance to show that he's not capable of being a you know number two or number three starter. And the Twins, they have a bunch of depth. They have a bunch of kind of mediocre veterans they've signed and some, some prospects. They still don't have a you know playoff caliber starting options, more than one or two of them. And so I would like to, you know at least for another half season, see what he can do as a starter, because I do think he has a chance to be pretty durable, get a lot more strikeouts than a typical starting pitcher. But when you look at the depth chart uh, for the rotation, and especially the guys they've made multiple multi-year commitments to uh, in free agency the past couple of off seasons, I think it's probably better than 50-50 that he just ends up being a you know a setup man this year, and then maybe a closer down the road. Do you think it's going to take a, a total? front office overhaul to change the approach to the pitching staff in this team because it's it's kind of been uh, notorious for years that they get guys who pitch to contact they don't get a lot of velocity last year their average is 91.7 miles an hour which was uh, in the lower third of baseball um, and it's kind of been that way for many many years and obviously they've with an interruption for Bill Smith they've had Terry Ryan for many years do you think that that's just going to be the way this team is put together uh, or is there a possible a change in approach happening I think it's for the most part just how it's going to be because Terry Ryan and you know he's had a, a lot of longtime assistants who have been with him for a while and when they pick up guys who are major league players on the pitching side it's almost always good control mediocre velocity low strikeout rate that's just who they tend to target and they've gotten some success out of that but not overall they've made an effort from a scouting standpoint to pursue higher velocity guys whether it's college relief pitchers or just international guys in the draft in, in international signings and trades but i just don't know that they've shown from a developmental standpoint that the organization is all that good at turning you know a 20 year old with a 95 mile an hour fastball into a actual effective major league pitcher i just don't think they've shown that they're particularly well equipped at that you can give them the raw velocity but they haven't turned it into anything and so if that's the case, then they might actually be better off just sticking with what they know. Uh, they still have to do a much better job at it if they're going to go for low velocity. But, yeah, you look at you know, the, what the rotation and even the bullpen looks like for 2016 and even the, the near future beyond that. There, there aren't a ton of guys uh, who are going to be throwing 95-plus and generating a lot of strikeouts. Uh, Jose Barrios, they hope, will be a front-line starter, but he's not going to be throwing 98. He's going to be you know, 92 to 94. They do have a few minor league relievers who can who can get close to triple digits, but they're not exactly knocking on the door to the majors after good seasons in the minors. So, yeah, it's still, for the most part, uh, pitch to contact or whatever you want to call it, and they're just going to try to you know, turn that into a above-average pitching staff. Aaron, last question for you. Uh, earlier today I tweeted that I was going to have you on the show, and I got a couple of favorites and retweets. 
Was one of them from your mom? Because it sure looked like it was from your mom. My mom is, uh, for better or worse, I would say worse, but most people seem to think it's charming, the biggest uh, Aaron Gleeman fan in the history of the world. Uh, and she basically monitors all social media. As soon as you post this podcast, she will listen to it. She will send it to every friend and relative. Uh, yeah, she. Uh, you can guarantee yourself if you're in the... Uh, if you want the 60-something uh, female in Minnesota demographic, you have that coverage by having me on. Well, hi, Mrs. Gleeman. Thanks for listening. We hope you like it. Aaron Gleeman of NBCSports.com and Roto World. Uh, follow him, listen to him, read him. Aaron, thanks for your time. Thank you. Welcome back to the MLB.com StackCast podcast. My next guest is calling in directly from the winter meetings in Nashville. It is MLB.com's own Cleveland Indians beat writer, Jordan Bastion. Jordan, how are you? Good. How you doing? I'm doing great. Jordan, every time the winter meetings are in Nashville, I just see a deluge of tweets from writers complaining about how big it is and how difficult it is to get around. So I want to ask you the opposite question. Name the best thing about having the winter meetings in Nashville. Oh, man. Uh, stepping outside and breathing real air <laughs> once a day. Uh, no, you know what? This place isn't too bad. And this is, uh, I actually think, I thought it was kind of funny that this is the first year I didn't need a map. Um, because this is my third winter meetings here at the Opryland, and there's some uh, some nice elements. I got a nice view of an artificial river from my balcony. All right. Uh, so that's cool. Um, there's it's it's not that bad. It's just I think any winter meetings when you're trapped inside a uh, hotel for four days and it's not San Diego, uh, you know, it's there's going to be some complaints. I guess if you're not going to see the city you're in, it might as well be on the moon. So let's move on to Cleveland, your team. Uh, we have to start with Carlos Carrasco, who I wrote about uh, at LB.com yesterday. I could probably dedicate a two-hour show to Carlos Carrasco and just write yeah. love letters to him because he's one of my favorite players for like 25 different reasons. Uh, and number one is I just think he's incredibly underrated. I think, you know, he had so many years. He was the top guy in the Cliff Lee trade. Didn't do much for like five full seasons. Blew out his arm. Got suspended. Uh, got, I think for headhunting, as I remember, really didn't do much of anything. And then 2014, he loses his rotation job, and it seems like that's about it. Goes to the bullpen for three months, comes back a completely new pitcher. He's only pitching out of the stretch. Uh, he's being a lot more aggressive. And over the last two seasons, if you look at fielding independent pitching, the top five guys, Kershaw, Arietta, Kluber, Chris Sale, Carlos Carrasco. So I have a lot of theories on what he did to improve his approach, but first I want to hear what's the number one reason for you. Why is Carlos Carrasco so good and so underrated right now? Man, I mean, as you can probably see by looking at his pitch usage, you know, there's been some shifts there, um, you know, in terms of what he did from his time in the bullpen um, to the transition back to the rotation. Uh, pitching out of the stretch is obviously, as you mentioned, an important part. I think a lot of it, he just said, it's kind of one of those things you can't really quantify. The idea of sometimes between his starts, he would spend, he felt too much time analyzing opposing lineups and, you know, maybe not just relying on his strength. And when he went down to the bullpen, when you're limited in the amount of pitches you're going to throw and you can adopt that more aggressive mentality, you know, he didn't spend much time pouring over scouting reports. And he spent more time leaning on what his weapons are and his strengths are. And then he saw the type of success that he had in that relief role, which was pretty overwhelming. And then when they went to the uh, transition back to the rotation, they kind of convinced him that, you know, you need to realize you can maintain that aggressiveness and that mentality. And instead of taking your foot off the gas because you know you're going to throw 100-plus pitches, you know, basically just go as aggressive as you can for as long as you can. Um, and obviously that combined with 
uh, pitching in the stretch, cutting down his pregame routine. You know, he wanted to kind of keep that bullpen uh, readiness uh, sort of routine. You know, and then on the line on that slider and uh, that split change, which is very unique and doesn't really have a comparison around baseball. You know, he's a very, as you mentioned, kind of a unique pitcher, and I think a lot of it um, had to do with that mental aspect, which you can't find on fan graphs, but it's there and it's real, and it helped transform this guy's career. Yeah, and I, I fully believe in the, the mental aspect for a guy like that, you know, changing his approach. Um, but I think also importantly, and you touched on this, he did change his pitch usage. Uh, Forcing fastball mm-hmm. two years ago, 56%, then 50%, and then down to 40%. And it's interesting when you look at that fastball, it throws at 95 miles an hour. Like, you would think that he's getting guys right. out with it. But it's actually pretty straight. And I, I found it to be an interesting comparison with Nathan Ivaldi, who's someone we've talked about a lot. He also throws about 95 miles an hour. Uh, he also throws the ball pretty straight. And so when we look at spin rate, the MLB average is about 2,300 RPM for forcing fastball, and Carrasco's 2,260, which is pretty close to average. And what that means is it's not staying high, it's not going low, it's just sort of there. Uh, and then he mm-hmm. decreased the usage of it. And like you said, the the crazy pitch that I think Jan Gomes just refers to as the thing, uh, you know, he's, despite throwing that hard, using that fastball less, I think actually not only made him more effective overall, but probably makes that fastball more effective because then you're looking for all these other pitches, and all of a sudden, boom, here comes 95 miles an hour. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that slider's a, a weapon, and I think, like I mentioned, that, that split change he has, which Salazar has uh, tried to work on as well and adopt into his, his pitch uh, repertoire, you know, it's been effective for him as well. I mean, I, I forget who did the post, but it was basically hunting for a pitcher who threw a similar pitch, and based on the movement and the velocity, you know, they're just, it, it's almost like Carrasco was the guy who threw that pitch, and that was really it. Um, and so it's unique to him and, you know, it's really hard for hitters to prepare for something like that when, you know, it's so specific. And the reason we're talking about Carrasco right now is because uh, not only is he very good, but he's also signed to one of the best contracts in baseball as far as the team is concerned. He's under contract for $37.5 million over the next five seasons if team options mm-hmm. are picked up. And you compare that to Zach Granke, who's obviously great, but he's going to get $34.3 million just next season alone. So for all the talk about Jose Fernandez and, you know, all kinds of crazy trade options that they might have, if the Indians decide to move Carrasco and they've got a strength in the rotation and weaknesses elsewhere, they could really ask for just about anything they want short of, like, Mike Trout and Bryce Harper, wouldn't you think? Yeah, and that's exactly what Chris Antonetti, um, their president of baseball operations, has said, that, you know, they've set the bar extremely high, especially given the way the market's unfolded. You know, they know what they have. They know what they have in Carrasco and Likewise, with Kluber and his affordable deal, and with Salazar and Bauer. I mean, these are guys that are um, youngish, you know, not youngish on, across the board when you're thinking of them as a group. Um, they're affordable, and they're still upside. And they're guys, you, know, you look at Kluber, he's already won a Cy Young. Um, so you've got a very talented group that they, uh, you could almost liken it to the Mets rotation in terms of production, uh, maybe a slight bit older in terms of age. Um, but you look at, as you mentioned, Granky and look at a guy like Samarjo, what he got, you know, if Carrasco were to hit the open market right now, uh, you know, you kind of imagine the type of deal that people would be willing to give him. Uh, so the Indians know what they have, and they've set the bar extremely high, and they've basically said that it, it would have to be the kind of deal that they just could not walk away from, you know, where they knew it wasn't just going to incrementally upgrade their offense while subtracting from the rotation. I mean, it would have to be something that would, you know, make overwhelming sense to pull the trigger. And, you know, I have my doubts that that deal is going to present itself this winter for any of the arms. 
Yeah, it's the kind of value where, uh, for example, Yasiel Puig, I don't think would be enough for him. It would have to be Puig and more right. to get him out of there. And I think that's that's hard for, I think, a lot of fans to understand just by looking at Carrasco's career numbers, because that's not really the pitcher he is right now. Uh, the Indians right. have another similar guy, not not so much with the same career path, but in terms of being very valuable and very underrated in Cody Allen, who was a 23rd round pick a few years back. Over his last three seasons, 278 strikeouts and 209 innings pitched. Uh, in just 2015, his strikeout percentage was the sixth best in baseball. He only throws two pitches. I think a lot of people don't actually know anything about him because he hasn't always been the closer up until the last year or two. But he's really, really good. And, you know, if that's the kind of guy the Indians might want to trade to get some offense, uh, I think he'd bring back a lot of value as well. Yeah, but I think in terms of trading him, um, the bullpen, you know, it's really reliant on him and Brian Shaw and then an assortment of characters. So I think he's very valuable not only – like you said, on a potential trade market, but to the Indians, and they don't really have that guy that they could replace. And given what he's going to be making in arbitration, um, it makes total sense for them in the position, just roster composition-wise, to hang on to him. And I think what's really, I was talking about it with somebody today, just the idea of the save statistic and, you know, kind of how that can handcuff some managers and, you know, raise guys' arbitration salaries. You know, with Cody Allen, he's really bought into the idea of being a high-leverage pitcher, um, which is what Terry Francona really likes. He doesn't like labeling guys, uh, you're the closer, you're the setup guy. Um, so you've seen situations where Allen has come in before the ninth inning um, while he's primarily been used as the closer in safe situations. You know, Francona has used him in other situations when he's deemed it's, that's the time they need to use that guy. And I think it's important that Allen is bought into that and, you know, if you asked for fans who they thought would be the, the leading war uh, reliever from last year, I don't think Cody Allen would be the guy that they would come up with. I think you could probably give them five to ten guesses, and they might not guess Cody Allen. Um, I think you could give them Fangraphs. 500 guesses, and they might not guess Cody Allen. Yeah, I mean, but you go to Fangraphs and sort that column, and he's first, and I think the Indians understand the value that they have there. Yeah, he's, he's interesting with that spike curve. It's, it's, as far mm-hmm. as spin rate goes, it's a 100 RPM uh, more than average, which means it, it generally dives a bit more. And I noticed when you were talking about the other the bullpen, you said an assortment of characters, uh, and you didn't mention Zach McAllister, who's someone I've kind of had a, a soft spot for for a long time. Uh, last year, I remember writing that I really wanted him to be the next guy to move from the rotation to the bullpen, right. and then he did this year. He dropped that ERA from 523 to 300, uh, strikeout percentage up from 19 to 28%, velocity up from 93 to about 95. So do you think that he is you know, going to be an effective member of that bullpen, or do you, you, know, do you still see him as kind of a, a question? Uh, I think for, uh, for the majority of the season last year, um, he was very good. Um, he kind of faltered a little bit late in the year, but I think they're committed to him now as a reliever where there were still questions when we went into spring training last year. You know, he was being stretched out as a starter. He actually opened the year in the rotation, um, and then he eventually went back in that relief role and had a lot of success. And, you know, uh, I know everyone likes to jump to who's the next Wade Davis. I think that's obviously setting the bar extremely high, but he definitely is a guy who fits into that uh, realm of, you know, he's kind of a two-pitch starter with a, with a third pitch. Um, and you move him to the bullpen, his velocity played up where you see that with some guys, and he's one of those guys. And I think this year he's going to play a more important role in terms of being a setup guy and the type of setup guy that could go, you know, an inning plus. You know, that's one thing they really like about him. Now I'm going to go out on a lame and guess that as you've been walking around the winter meetings, you've received fewer questions about whether they're going to trade a pitcher and more questions about what's going on inside Michael Brantley's shoulder. Uh, because he had that breakout in 2014. He mostly backed it up in 2015, more walks, a little less power. 
Then he had shoulder surgery in November, was supposed to be out, I think, originally till May. Then we started hearing August, and then we started hearing July. Uh, what is the, what's the truth on that, or do you even have the truth on that? Well, I think it's one of those things where I guess we really don't know. I mean, until he steps into the lineup, you know, everything right now is speculation. But to you know, to what the, the Indians are saying, I mean, they're saying that the report of June or July or August is not accurate. Um, that, you know, they're not sure where that came from. And I've talked to multiple people within the front office and the medical staff, and they all have echoed that same um, thought process that their expectation of his timetable has not changed. There hasn't been any setbacks in his rehab. Um, you know, they've kept close uh, ties on him, and, you know, they're going to, he had a checkup this week while they're at the winter meetings. He's going to head back and see the surgeons. So we'll have an update soon on how that went. The Indians aren't expecting anything out of the ordinary. So, um, the timetable remains hopefully in April, maybe more realistically in May. And, you know, if he has to go through his own sort of personal spring training and that lingers to mid uh, late May or first week of June, I don't, I don't think that's unrealistic. Um, but I think August would be extremely surprising. And you know, that's not something the Indians are anticipating right now. So his, his absence, uh, it kind of hurts what's a interesting depth chart. And this is why you keep hearing about maybe pitchers will be traded because you look at the starting lineup for this team. And I think there's four guys that are really good and solid. You have Gomez behind the plate, Kipnis and Lindor up the middle, and Chisenhall, you know, really was impressive in right field. And then you look at the other five spots, and first base and DH are currently kind of a mix between Chris Johnson and Carlos Santana. Uh, third baseman is Urshela, who came up and was was fine, but, you know, uncertain. Uh, center field is maybe Almonte. Left field is Cowgill or Butler, who they just picked up. Uh, how many of those five spots are going to turn over, do you think, by opening day? Oh, man, I mean, it's going to be interesting. I think um, it's almost put the Indians in a tough spot. When you know Michael Brantley is coming back, it kind of limits how you can fill that because you need to fill with a guy who could be a starter in a short-term basis but then maybe transition to a fourth outfielder role. You know, it's if you're looking at free agents and things like that, um, to try and convince a guy to sign with the knowledge that it might not be a full-time job one month later, you know, that's a unique situation um, to be in. So it's they're right now trying to get as many bodies as they can um, to hopefully fill that spot and kind of create some depth, lengthen it out. So they got Joey Butler, they got Colin Cowgill. They've they'll probably they have a couple uh, non-roster guys, and I'm sure they'll get some more. And it's kind of going to be a patchwork situation. But um, Almonte, once Brantley's back, could be a fourth outfielder. Um, there's reports that they're talking to a guy like Rajay Davis. You know, on a one-year deal with maybe an option included, um, you know, he's a guy who could maybe fill in as a starter but then transition to a backup role. Um, and obviously Calgill could maybe be a kind of platoon partner with Chisenhall in right field or Spelling Almonte if he's in center field. So a lot of moving parts in the outfield right now, and I'm not sure they're going to be able to solve it with one guy. It might just have to sort of be a, a mix-and-match situation. And one thing to Terry Francona's credit, you know, since he's been in Cleveland, you know, he has done well in maximizing value of platoon situations and things like that. You've seen, you know, Ryan Rayburn have strong seasons as a platoon guy or even Chisholm Hall excel when at-bats against lefties are limited to a certain point. And, you know, so I think that's one thing Frank Conner has done well, and it's one thing he's going to need to do well if they're not able to solve it with sort of a solid starting outfielder and kind of go by a outfield by committee. Well, I really hope they figure it out because Cleveland was my breakout team uh, for 2015, right. and that didn't work out so well for me. 
but I look at that rotation in Carrasco and Allen, I really want to be able to pick them again. So I look forward greatly to seeing what they're going to do in the next couple of days and over the next couple of weeks. Uh, Jordan Bastion at MLB.com, thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. All right, no problem. Anytime. This has been the MLB.com StackCast podcast. Thanks to my guests, Aaron Gleeman of NBCSports.com and Jordan Bashan of MLB.com. Catch you next week.